Welcome to The Garret. I'm Pip Williams. The Garret, a podcast by writers, for writers, about writing. Here's your host, Astrid Edwards. Pip, your first novel, The Dictionary of Lost Words, that came out in 2020, I think it's safe to say it sold very, very well. Your second work that came out in March 2023, The Bookbinder of Jericho, exists in the same fictional world at the same time that you have created. It is not a sequel, but nevertheless, there there are very clear similarities and linkages. Can you introduce the listeners to The Bookbinder of Jericho? I'd love to, Astrid. Uh, The Bookbinder of Jericho, I would describe it as a companion to the Dictionary of Lost Words in that it's kind of like a a sister or a a friend. If you read one, it will enhance the other, but you really don't need to read the Dictionary of Lost Words to read the bookbinder or vice versa. They exist alone, but there are some characters that cross over. But this story is set, it begins at the beginning of World War I and it is bound really by the years of that war. And it is all about a woman who works in the bindery of Oxford University Press. And she has been told that her job is to bind the books, not read them, but all she desires, her her greatest dream is to, to study and to learn. And she would like nothing more than to be a student at Somerville College, which is directly across the road from Oxford University Press. To be told that you had to bind the books and not read them, that would be a form of torture for me. As I was reading this work, I realised I have no idea how books were bound in the past and how they are currently bound. And so a potentially odd question for you, but I know you have researched this. How were books bound? Because it was so labour intensive. It really was. And I didn't know how books were bound either. So, you know, a lot of people will tell you to write what you know, but I'm I'm much more interested in writing what I'm curious about and what I have no idea about. And this is one of those examples. So when I started writing this book, I was interested in the work of the women who worked in the bindery of Oxford University Press because I'd come across them in the research that I'd been doing for dictionary. But actually, I'd come across them, but couldn't find very much about them at all in in the archives. I could find a lot about the men and the men's work in the press, but not the women's work. Um, What I did find was tantalising. You know, I found a couple of photographs and I found some black and white footage of of a woman gathering sections into her arm. And that's when I had that that question, it just popped into my head. I wonder if she ever reads what she's what she's um, gathering, what she's binding, what she's folding. And I realised she probably couldn't because it would slow work down. And then I had this sort of this, this image of water, water everywhere and not a drop to drink and being thirsty for knowledge and being in a situation, a really rare situation where you actually have access, literally you can put your fingertips on all of the knowledge that that university, you know, the most, most prestigious university in the country, one of the most prestigious universities in the world, at your fingertips was all of that knowledge and yet you were told not to read it. And it was just such a, um, a kind of overwhelming idea uh, that I, I had to write about it. And I've now forgotten your question. <laughs> it was a strange question. I was what wondering. Book binding? Yeah, how the books were bound. And so that's how I first saw how the books were bound, uh, through this black and white film that you can still see online. I think it's called 
the binding of a book at Oxford University Press. And it takes you right through from being in the forge where they're forging the metal type uh, that the typesetters used, right through to the um, typesetting, the printing, the folding of the pages, the gathering of the sections, the sewing of the book, the making of the covers, and then the, you know, covering those boards in leather or cloth and embossing them and gilding them and everything to wrapping those books in paper and putting them in a truck and sending them out. So I've sort of just described it in brief, but that film really told me everything I needed to know. But what it didn't do is is let me feel all of those processes. So that was a different, you know, I had to find someone that could teach me how to bind a book um, so that I understood exactly what it might have felt like. As I read your latest novel, I kept flashing back to this uh, long-form piece of nonfiction that was in the New York Times a few years ago, uh, showing in in kind of really short videos, almost GIFs um, and still photographs, Marlon James's latest book being printed. And the whole thing now is, I mean, it's extraordinary and fascinating to watch, but also so mechanized and impersonal. And there are very few kind of you know, individuals touching those books until basically they get to the bookseller at, at, at the kind of very end. And the scenes in this work were so lovely. The idea of like people staying back late at night to fix books and rebind them because books were so precious. It's a part of, you know, reading and writing that I often don't reflect on. And it is a beautiful part. Yeah, it's something that, um, like I said, I came across and became then enamoured with the process, but also with the people who must have been part of that process, because the people who bound the books were not the people who necessarily would read them. Um, Although we do, I think, have an erroneous idea about the working classes 100 years ago. They were, in fact, if they were literate, they were well read, um, far better read than we um, would think. They read Shakespeare, they read Dickens, they read all sorts of classics in a way that we don't today. Um, so we underestimate their, their level of engagement in, in um, novels and books. And I suppose it makes more sense that they read because they didn't have other <laughs> competing entertainments. And so I think even the people in the bindery would have valued the books that they were making. But yes, a single book could have 20 people handle it over its lifetime. And the handling was sometimes gentle, but also sometimes quite violent. The making of a book, I realise, you know, there's there's not only the folding is probably the most gentle part, there's cutting, there's beating of the spine, there's this squeezing all the air out of it, you know, in a, in a, a press there are so many processes that I found were quite kind of confronting when you write about them and you realise how violent the life of a book is in terms of bringing it into being. And that when somebody buys a book from a bookshop and they open it for the first time and crack its spine, they really think they're the first person who's handled that book. (laughs) And I loved that they weren't. I loved that that was a fallacy really and that there was a whole army of people behind bringing that book to life. As you were just describing, uh, you know, our preconceptions of of who read, uh, that really brings us to one of the themes in the bookbinder of Jericho, which which is class. You explore uh, class in London. This is all set during World War One, but the whole novel 
it's about a love of books and and reading and, and that world that a book can take you but it is world war one it, it is the uh, experience of war and uh, refugees fleeing the war it is of war trauma and war wounds uh the suffragette movement women entering the workforce that there is so much in there and this is a historical novel how did you approach creating that time period and that world yeah, it's really interesting. My initial attraction to writing about that period of time was not the history and was not the war. It was the dictionary. I was interested in in understanding how the dictionary was put together and then I wrote around that. And in writing around the dictionary, I had to obviously engage in the history, uh, in the context within which it sat. That included World War I and the suffrage movement and all of those things. When I came to write Bookbinder of Jericho, I was very keen to focus just on the World War I period. So there's an overlap between the two books because they both touch on World War I. That's where they overlap in time. But I was interested, having done so much reading about this era because I wrote Dictionary, it, it was really clear to me that this time in history, early 20th century, this time in history was incredibly volatile. It was, it was a time of such enormous social change and upheaval. Um, and when there is tragedy and social change and upheaval on the scale that it existed back then, then cracks appear in the normal order of things. And I was really interested in um, trying to understand how those cracks in the normal order of things might affect a young woman like Peggy, who is a working class woman who left school at 12, who works in the bindery that her mother has worked in, her grandmother has worked in. There was an expectation she'd work in it until her fingers were arthritic and she could no longer fold the pages. Um, her life was mapped out for her. And then the war started. And and other things had already started to happen, the suffrage movement in particular, but the war accelerated the suffrage movement as well, even though the suffragettes in particular stepped back from their activities. Um, that was quite a deliberate agreement, really, between the suffragettes and the government to step back and to support the war. But women's role during World War I, women's, um, women stepping up into men's jobs, uh, women taking on basically the role of keeping the country running really did, most people would, would um, say, accelerate the women's cause. However, having said that, <laughs> when women finally, finally got the vote in 1918, it was only some women and it was definitely divided down class lines. So working class women did not get the right to vote in 1918, despite the fact that working class women stepped up and worked in munitions factories and drove buses and did all of those things that kept the country running. It was their middle and upper class counterparts who finally got the vote. They had to wait another 10 years before they had that privilege. And so class is really important. And, and the war did break down many class, I wouldn't say it broke down class barriers in that before the war, in Oxford in particular, they had this, this notion of town and gown. Town were the working class people, the people who had lived in Oxford, um, you know, for generations and worked there. Gown was everyone associated with the university. And the two usually only cross paths in a servant-master relationship. But the war changed that. The war brought people together 
and it also um, it, it changed the way they thought about each other. So what's your research process like? I know you've done obviously research in London itself. How do you get it all accurately into this world that you create? I'm, I am actually interested in being accurate to the extent that I can be. I think I have a social science background, so I have a research background, and it's probably a leftover from that that it's important for me to um, be as accurate as I can be with the known facts. And facts for me are things like dates, when things happened. Those are the sorts of things that I consider facts that I can't change. And so for me, that history is the scaffold on which I hang my fiction, um, and it doesn't shift. In terms of writing the truth of history, which is something completely different, that's not about facts, that's about um, experience and thought and emotion and all of those sorts of things. And often it's the things that are missing from the historical record. They're the things I'm interested in exploring in fiction. And in order to do my research, I read really widely initially. I, I read history books, but I also read fiction. I read novels and poetry, um, memoir particularly, and particularly I read the work of women from the time that I'm interested in. So I don't necessarily read historical fiction. I read fiction written in 1920. And I also look at artwork that was made by women at that time. And this is how I suppose I try to get a sensibility uh, that is missing from the history books. And that's what I then work with when I'm writing my fiction. Other people have said this, that they do a lot of research and they write a lot of notes. And I have so many notebooks. I've written so many notes, but I don't actually go back to them very often. And it's not me that said this, but I, I wholly agree that you do all of the research and you do it quite thoroughly and you make the notes and you post it and, and all those sorts of things. But then as you're writing the fiction, it's the things that you find interesting that float to the top of that research pile. And in some ways, I only go back to check the facts of, of what's floated to the top. I don't go back through my notebooks to look for significant bits of information because I'm hoping they have just stuck in my brain and if they've stuck in my brain because they were interesting I'm hoping they'll be interesting to a reader I'm not a slave to the research in in that sense uh, but I will go back and check my sources when I have included something in the fiction and then I do research and write at the same time so I might write something and I'll write something off you know I'll just bring it out of my head something quite fictional and then keep my fingers crossed that it's true to the <laughs> true to the history or true to the times. And then I might research that just to sort of check. And then I might adjust what I've written to make sure that it, it fits with the history. But one of the things that I found, Astrid, because I do rely on the art of women that was done at the time, that art is done by middle and upper class women. It's done by women of means because it was only women who had the time and the money, or as Virginia Woolf would say, they had a room of their own and 700 a year. It was only those women who could afford to make art. It's not to say that working class women weren't making art, but they weren't publishing it in, in the same way that um, women of means were publishing it. And so I have far little of that to go on when it comes to working class women's experiences. And so I do have to extrapolate a little bit 
from the art that I, I do get to um, see today. But again, it's one of those, it's one of those gaps in the history. Um, and it's a gap not because of just gender, but it's a gap because of class. And I would say the same, obviously, for, uh, you know, women and men of who were immigrants or refugees or um, who were anything other than the white ruling class in Britain at that time. And you could, you know, in any country that you're writing about, but I was writing about Britain. They are not represented in history and also not in art, particularly. And the central characters of the book Wonder of Jericho, you know, are working class. You've mentioned Peggy before, uh, the protagonist. Peggy also has a twin sister, Maud. They both work in the bindery together. I was interested in kind of where you got the characters from, like how you found the story through Peggy and her twin Maud, but also why the choice of twin sisters and what did that let you do and explore essentially as a narrative device in this world? So the character of Peggy came when I saw that woman gathering sections. She just came immediately. But Maud came very soon after. And like you said, they're identical twins. They look exactly the same, Um, but they're very, very different individuals. Maud came quickly, I think, because in some ways I was exploring Peggy's, um, what, what would get in the way of Peggy achieving her dream of learning and education. There are all sorts of things that you and I could list that would get in the way of a, a working class woman in at the beginning of the 20th century, you know, mostly structural things. But I felt I needed her to have something else um, that would hold her back. For most of us, even today, the thing that holds us back from pursuing our dreams are our caring responsibilities. So it might be children, it might be a partner, it might be a sibling or an elderly parent, or it might be an animal that we we love and can't leave. You know, we might want to travel, but we can't leave the dog. But we have these caring responsibilities that are very significant and they they change the trajectory of our lives. And so I wanted Peggy to have a caring responsibility. And she and her sister have lost their mother three years prior to the book starting. They're about 21 years old. And so that caring responsibility, um, in some ways I wanted to make Maud somebody who Peggy thought she needed to care for. This doesn't mean that Peggy does need to care for Maud, but Peggy needs to think she needs to care for Maud. So Maud is quite different. Maud sees the way the world differently. The world sees Maud differently, but she's not at all simple. Uh, She just exists differently in the world. And I try not to define her with any labels that we might use today because I really would like readers to come to get to know her on her own terms and labels tend to restrict the way we think about people and she's far more complex than a label could possibly (laughs) possibly um, indicate and so that's why Maud's there and she's really important because um, she's almost a foil to Peggy She's a truth teller throughout the story, uh, though, though she says very little on the page because she communicates in, in echoes. It's what's called echolalia. She has this way of communicating that is quite different to everybody else's, but if you understand it, if you know how she does it, you can easily translate what she's saying. And so that's why she's there. And the story is it's first person from Peggy's point of view, but there are multiple storylines in this book and Maud's is one of them. 
I'd like to shift our discussion a little bit to kind of the logistics of publishing. Your first novel was published in 2020, and we all know that was not a brilliant year for anyone, including publishing and, you know, how on earth you sell a book and and meet readers and just all of that connecting with an audience. Three years later, things have changed and worked themselves out. I'm interested in the, the difference in your experience from launching a book in 2020 to launching a book in 2023. Yeah, it's really different. <laughs> you know, there was all sorts of all sorts of disappointment, I suppose, at the beginning of 2020 because my book came out, I think it was two days after we all went into lockdown. And there was discussions about delaying publication and and we decided not to very quickly. I was a debut author, so there was a lot of concern that it would, you know, it just would fall flat, that no one would read it. You know, something beautiful happened. Booksellers really did do amazing things. Um, And because my book was published so early in lockdown, it, it was the focus of those early Zoom book club type things. And lots of people turned up to them because they had nothing else to do on a Friday night. After about three weeks, no one wanted to go on Zoom on a Friday night because they'd been on Zoom all day at work. (laughs) I think there was a little bit of serendipity around the timing of my book. And then because that book wasn't about modern times, people could escape into it. Um, So I'm sure that all contributed to um, how well it was received. But what it meant for me is that the book tour was cancelled, most festivals were cancelled, those that did go online, for me it was a one-hour Zoom from my lounge room, there was no travel, there was very little for me to do for that book and so I just kept writing. And so one of the upsides for me is that I did manage to write this second book within three years, which, which for me, you know, I, I think that that's a good amount of time. I know some people write a book a year and I just, I, my hat, I take my hat off to them. I have no idea how they do it. But three years is probably <laughs> good for me. So it meant I could write the new book. But this time around, honestly, I, I'm shocked at how busy it is. You know, I did a, a three-week book tour, which was visiting bookshops and signing books, doing interviews and events in most states across Australia. I feel like, you know, I have talked to hundreds and hundreds of readers in just a few weeks and I never had that opportunity with the previous book. And so this is really different. It's it's really wonderful, really tiring, and I have no opportunity to write anything new whatsoever. (laughs) But I'm loving it. What have you had to learn or adjust in terms of, I don't know, expectations of the publisher, things that you want to do for your own readers? Well, I think it's mostly the time management. My expectations of my publisher are far lower than what they've actually <laughs> what they've actually achieved. They have been incredible. My publicist, uh, Laura McNichol-Smith, I'll say her name out loud because so many people in publishing are not named, but honestly, our books would not, they would not get to readers if not for these people. And my editor and and my publicist are two people who, you know, Ruby Ashbior is my editor. She's amazing. And Laura McNichol-Smith is my publicist. And, you know, all those things that you see out there, that's her work. And um, she, I said at my book launch, 
I can't imagine there'd be a single person in Australia who hadn't heard of my book by the end of the week. (laughs) And that is the role of a publisher. And obviously it's a win-win situation. So it's good for the author, but it's obviously good for the publisher when they publicise the book so well. And booksellers, though, have just taken to the challenge of, of um, I suppose, getting the book into readers' hands. And I'm incredibly grateful. My expectations are far lower than, than what's been achieved by everybody. I expect that makes you a dream to work with. My final question for you, you've now published uh, two works of historical fiction, you know, set in the same time period, both set in London. Would you ever write in a different time period or a different location? I mean, would you set something in Australia? Absolutely. So in fact, the book I'm working on now, I say working on, I'm not working on it now. (laughs) The book that's in my head is actually a book that I was working on before I wrote Dictionary. And it's far more contemporary and closer to home. That's how I describe it. You know, I'm a little bit scared about writing it because like I said, I never set out to write historical fiction. So I just want to write. I just want to write fiction and I want to write as well as I possibly can and I'd like to think that I could try my hand at different things but I'm nervous now because I have this reputation I suppose and also at every event I've done everyone has asked is there a third book in the Oxford context and I do have an idea for a third book but it's a long way away it needs time to percolate so you know I'm I'm hoping I'm hoping that I get the time to work on this more contemporary novel and that I can pull it off. I'm looking forward to reading both, yeah, a more contemporary work from you and maybe one day potentially the uh, third book <laughs> uh, in the Oxford Companion Sister book series. <laughs> Thank you so much for your time today. Oh, Astrid, it's been a huge pleasure. Thank you for having me. The Garrett is produced by Bad Producer Productions. Subscribe to The Garrett on all good podcast apps and read the transcripts of our interviews at thegarrettpodcast.com.